0: By the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all who holds sway over the five points. Welcome to Now Playing's Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio retrospective series. I swore this was a battle between warriors, so warriors is what I brought. With the February 19th release of Scorsese's latest film, Shutter Island, we here at Now Playing will be looking at the latest chapter in Scorsese's career by reviewing his four most recent films, Gangs of New York, The Aviator, The Departed, and Shutter Island, all of which star Leonardo DiCaprio. Are you with us or not? These discussions will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Four deep thinkers.
1: And today we are discussing The Departed, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Along with a blockbuster all star cast, Jack Nicholson, Matt Damon, Mark Wahlberg, Alec Baldwin, Martin Sheen, and a whole lot of other people, and directed by Martin Scorsese. Matt Damon. (laughs) I know what you're doing. This is Stuart from Southie, LA.
2: This is Jacob, and I may or may not be a cheese eating rat uh, from another podcast trying to see what's going on here. This is
3: Ani from Boston. (laughs) Oh. but am I the only one who when Jack Nicholson was saying that John Lennon said, give me a tuber and I'll give you something? I thought he meant a potato and I had to look up the quote and it was actually a tuba, not a tuber.
1: Oh, my God. That's exactly what I thought he said. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's such a strange thing to say.
2: <laughs> well, I just thought it was nice that Matt Damon could reprise his accent from Good Will Hunting. Yes, absolutely. Oh, my absolutely. God, yes.
1: It was a homecoming for a couple of them. Mark Wahlberg as well is Boston, The Departed. All right. For those who
3: haven't seen it, The Departed is a movie about two people undercover, one a cop undercover as a gangster being played by Leonardo DiCaprio, the other a gangster undercover as a cop being played by Matt Damon. And both are seemingly in the employ of the state police, as well as Jack Nicholson, who plays Frank Costello, the preeminent Irish gangster of the area.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we'll get there.
3: There's a lot of back and forth between the two as they struggle with their undercover identities versus their real identities. Leo meeting with his contacts at the police force, the only ones who know Leo is a cop, played by Martin Sheen as Captain Queenan and Marky Mark. I'm sorry, he's Mark Wahlberg these days as Sergeant Dingham and Matt Damon meeting with Jack Nicholson to discuss the various ways in which the cops are trying to capture Frank. This escalates to the point where Martin Sheen is thrown off a roof, Sergeant Dingham is fired slash quits, thus nobody left in the police force knows Leo is a cop, and he and Matt Damon escalate. Matt Damon feels like the cops are on his heels, so he arranges for Frank to be caught and kills Frank, leading to a showdown between Leonardo and Matt, where Leonardo tries to arrest Matt, but then out of absolutely nowhere, Berrigan shoots Leo in the the head matt damon shoots barrigan in the head anthony anderson gets shot in the head if you've seen that <laughs> S- snl skit where everybody is shot and dying it's basically that at the end and with a couple people living. and then as a shock twist ending we did give you a spoiler alert matt damon's coming home with some groceries when marky mark shoots him in the head credits roll
2: <laughs> this is all very hamlet
1: everyone <laughs> dies <laughs> Hamlet by way of Tarantino, which is an interesting take on it all. It's a big, sprawling epic about rats. That's the closest I can put to it in a sentence. Rats with tails. Everybody's an informant. Everybody's chasing and tailing everybody else. I got to say it is a homecoming for Martin Scorsese. This is the kind of Martin Scorsese movie I think of when I think of the man. He had been out in the wilderness, really not making anything like this. Since Goodfellas, and this was a, I will go ahead and call it, triumphant return to form after experiments both positive and negative.
3: And yet what's funny is, you know, you talk about Scorsese returning, but this is actually based on a Hong Kong film, actually a film trilogy called Infernal Affairs, and Scorsese directed, but he didn't come up with the original screenplay nor rewrite it to the American screenplay.
1: Yeah, no, he doesn't usually write screenplays and it is a different source material exactly. It's kind of, I mean this movie is all about one identity chasing another. I feel like the movie's history is that as well. It's like Scorsese chasing a Hong Kong movie which was chasing Tarantino uh, which Tarantino stole from both Scorsese and Hong Kong movies it's true origin is hard to know but it's all wrapped up in one big knot yeah I gotta say it, it, you watch this movie my first reaction if I hadn't known that was not Hong Kong I mean it's, it is so steeped in Boston Boston bastin oh god, this is going to get old. Uh, a bastin lore and the details of that city that you would not recognize it as something John Woo would be making. Not that John Woo made this infernal affairs. It was Andy Lau, but our listeners know John Woo and they
3: don't know Andy Lau is that what you're saying? Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I can admit that I wouldn't have known this was a remake of a Chinese movie if I hadn't looked it up. And it does feel very much like an American crime film. It doesn't feel like a foreign crime film. However, because we're doing this Scorsese series, I felt a lot of parallels to Gangs of New York here. Now, thank God we're in modern times. I'm not a big fan of period pieces that go before my personal lifespan. I'm egocentric like that. I was glad to see it in modern times. But here we have Leonardo DiCaprio infiltrating a gang, pretending to be a bad guy to get close to... The leader becoming the leader's right hand man, and they're all Irish.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with you, Arnie. I-, I thought the same thing. This is a modern retelling of gangs of New York. I mean, gangs of New York so distant, we don't really remember. We needed a, a modern take on it, I guess. Gangs of Boston. Gangs of <laughs> Boston. I also thought it was kind of similar to Goodfellas because we're doing you know all these Scorsese movies. I went back, I watched Goodfellas because I've heard such great things about it. And Goodfellas too. It's it's about an you know an outsider trying to be part of this gang you know it's it's a different take it's not a cop i I believe he's irish too part italian part irish trying to get in with with the mafia but scorsese seems to have this theme going where about outsiders trying to get in what their motives are whether they're sinister whether they're good i saw a lot of similar themes with this from with some of his other movies
1: Sure, and I think he's, he makes them in a similar way, too. You've mentioned before that you weren't sure what his style was, but the more you probably watch, the more you realize how good he is at telling you information very, very fast, how he uses dolly shots, all sorts of cinematic tricks to just feed you information all the time. Character bits, stuff that may not even move a plot forward, but really steeps you into a mood, into a feeling. Uh, This camera is flying right from the get-go. He's got to catch you up with two life histories, as well as an organized crime family in a ethnically diverse neighborhood within 20 minutes. I mean, it's 18 minutes before the opening credit even rolls. And it's like this big whizzing montage of just, information dollies they even got an old iris yeah what was with the iris shots they were both on
3: matt damon and the whole time i felt like he was going to be killed by sniper fire at the end that was (laughs) foreshadowing it and it paid off in absolutely no way ever
2: this is going to come up later in this review but i think it's some heavy-handed symbolism it was there. It isolates him. Uh, it shows him a, a couple times where it, you have this iris effect. And it's always when he's alone, he's isolated. And I think it's just really heavy-handed symbolism that Scorsese was using. There, there's a lot of heavy-handed symbolism going on in this movie. More artistic douchebaggery? Yeah, I, it's, I, I'm going to get into some of the stuff that went on in this. But I liked a lot of stuff in here. But there's some, uh, a lot of the themes that are brought up. Just too heavy-handed. A lot of his techniques, like with that iris and with some stuff towards the end of this movie. Yeah, I just – I would like a little bit more subtlety.
1: Well, it's good to see the man working in his old form. We can we can talk about what which parts are heavy and which parts work. We also got Leo back in this, and as a foil for Matt Damon – I don't think you could have gotten better. I think that they actually complement each other. The status that they both have in Hollywood, I imagine they get each other's parts all the time. It's funny that you never would have thought that they would have been in the same movie together because they're kind of, in some ways, the same thing.
3: All right, here's what I gotta get into. I'm against my will. I'm a fan of Matt Damon. If that makes sense, I don't want to like the man as much as I do. But from Goodwill Hunting to the Bourne films to the Ocean films to Talented Mr. Ripley, the man's good in everything. Mm-hmm. And I think he outshines Leo because here's the thing that Matt Damon has going for him. That I think Leo is just lacking totally. Charisma. Matt Damon has charisma and you want to see him on screen and he steals the screen and he's chewing up the scenery and he's so good in whatever role he takes, major or minor, in a film. Leo is a good actor. I don't think Matt Damon could play Arnie. but And I certainly wouldn't want to see him try.
1: (laughs) You are the retarded kid from Gilbert Grape. The retarded kid from Gilbert Grape. (laughs)
3: Who can can play you, Arnie?
1: Who can play you? I don't know.
3: I just think that Leo can act, but Leo doesn't captivate and command the screen and have the charisma of a Matt Damon. And in this movie, I found myself
1: rooting for Matt Damon
3: just because
1: of that. I agree with you in this much. Damon has the charmer role here. He's the guy who, you're right, he's sassy, he charms you. He's the one that actually courts uh, the woman that they both end up having a relationship with. Leo here is much more isolated. He's much less social. I mean, he has to go deep undercover, and no no one other than Martin Sheen and Marky Mark know who he is, so he really is cut off. And I think it's just a much more edgy, internalized, a character you would have seen Robert De Niro play in Taxi Driver or something. This is the Robert De Niro part if this had been made 30 years ago.
2: Yeah, but he doesn't come off as Robert De Niro to me in this. I think I'm on Arnie's side here where I was watching this and I'm like, oh, he's just reprising his role from Gangs of New York. He didn't really bring anything new. To this movie, Leo just seemed kind of bland. He did have some good comic timing with some of his lines that I really enjoyed. Uh, got a laugh out of me, but overall, he just seemed bland in here. He he, he didn't seem bad. He didn't take away, but I wasn't watching it enthralled in his performance, like with uh, Jack Nicholson or Martin Sheen or or Mark Wahlberg or Alec Baldwin. I mean, I I got wrapped up in their performances. And he came along. I I don't know. I I just thought he could have brought something more to being this distraught undercover cop that's trying to hold on to his sanity.
3: Absolutely. I think that I agree with every name you just mentioned, Jacob. Their performances just thrilled me. You know, they were good actors doing good work and guys who I like from other stuff, too. You know, you got a familiarity with these people, you know, and it was just seeing them. And here you're supposed to see Leo and Stuart, you said he's doing the de niro let me tell you something de niro scares me de niro has (laughs) always scared me de niro pulls off meet the parents because he's playing on the fact that you're fucking afraid of him leo doesn't scare me at all ever he does not play a tough guy well he he doesn't come off as tough you know he was perfect in romeo plus juliet as kind of the Faye socal romeo But, you know, when he takes that glass and smashes somebody's head in, it feels so forced and fake because Leo just doesn't come across as tough. And despite giving him tough guy roll after tough guy roll, it's not working for me.
1: I'll concede this much. He's not macho. You don't look at him and think, that guy is a badass, ever. When I bring up Robert De Niro, what I'm really talking about is that he seems damaged. There's something wrong with him. He is just, both in Gangs in New York and this one, and and from what I've seen from the previews of Shutter Island, he's just jittery. and Well, Aviator, too, what am I saying? That's the most jittery character he's ever played. There's just something not right in the head about him. He is not connecting with the people around him. He is really wrapped up with things in his head. And and you're right. Everyone else is stealing the limelight and has great lines and really capturing your imagination. Leo is a slow burn. He's like a damaged kid that you can't reach, you know. He's doing something different than what everyone else is doing in this movie.
2: Which isn't necessarily a good thing. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I actually wish he would have brought a bit more of his Howard Hughes performance into this with the nervous tics. The whole thing with writing is show, don't tell. And you get a lot of him talking about how he's going crazy, how he can't take this, how he's a nervous wreck. But his performance just never really showed that to me. We talked about how this was based on a Chinese movie, Infernal Affairs, and I went and watched that. And the equivalent role in that movie, that guy's a nervous wreck. I mean, you could just tell just from looking at him, the way he acts, uh, the way he looks, the, his jitters, that it's taken a toll on him. I just never got that performance in this movie.
3: You know, I didn't watch Infernal Affairs. I wish I had. I, I did go to Wikipedia and read the very detailed plot summaries. And you're right. I get a lot more out of reading the plot summaries of what Leonardo DiCaprio's character was supposed to be going through than I did in actually watching the movie. Because you've got Leo all over the map here. You've got him popping pill- Pills? Why is is he popping pills? Is he nervous? On the other hand, he says his hand never shakes. I'm very confused as to why he does a lot of what he does. And I just don't feel DiCaprio's portrayal here was very good in a movie
1: full of good performances. DiCaprio was the weak link. You're right. He is a character that is internally a total wreck but never reveals it, never, exactly, his hand never shakes. I think that would be hard to play. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and make this whole podcast about, Actually, I think Leo was good, I do, but I just think it was an internalized performance, and everyone else is a ham. And, of course, it's more fun to watch the hams.
2: I'm glad that his brain synapses inside of his head were able to appreciate his internal performance, because <laughs> I didn't get that. But you've got
3: Damon, who's, you know, balls out, texting a gangster while in a room full of cops to tell the gangster the cops are coming. I mean, that just, that moment was full of suspense when he's doing that. And you've got Leo, you know, doing almost an exact same thing, texting the cops while surrounded by gangsters. And, you know, that had some great tension. But I really got that Damon was struggling between his two lives. And with DiCaprio, I just got that he was pissed off to be there and... I want to say I like this movie. I could have loved this movie if DiCaprio had turned in a better performance or somebody other than DiCaprio had been there.
1: Okay. One of the reasons I think we root for Damon more, and I think that's true, is that we get more of his whole life story. The movie begins with a montage right from the get-go. He is a little kid in a grocery store, and Frank, played by Jack Nicholson, waltzes in there and sort of takes him under his wing, and we see... Right from the get-go, how he's an altar boy who goes bad, and that Frank has a, a charming way of undermining Catholic teaching and making him get used to the idea of being a cop that's gone bad, and yet not having us judge Damon too much for being a bad cop. I think there's a lot of setup that needs to go into letting us like Damon and care about him as a corrupt cop, and I think they do it well.
2: You're onto something, Stuart. We do get more of his background. We get to see how he got involved in this whole story, whereas Leo just kind of pops up in police training, and mm-hmm. I love that opening scene, just great dialogue when Jack Nicholson comes into that little diner, that little shop, and meets Matt Damon as a kid for the first time, you know, get him some milk, get him some comic books, it just great way you know none of this heavy handed uh, trying to get him to go over to the dark side he comes in as a father and that's a common theme with Scorsese's people looking for their dads I think Or Mm -hmm. or, or some kind of relationship with their parents. You know, we talked about Howard Hughes and The Aviator with his uh, Oedipus complex. So, yeah.
3: Am I the only one who got a little confused because you get the fade where you see, you know, little kid Damon, and then it fades to adult Matt Damon in the Academy, and that, of course, is movie's way of telling you this is the little boy all grown up. But then a few minutes later, you know, you've got Marky Mark and Martin Sheen grilling the hell out of Leo and his connections and his family and things, and. You've got Matt Damon as the good guy. Am I the only one who was like, wait a second, are we sure Matt Damon's the kid who grew up? And of course it was, but I just had that moment because it seemed like Leo was the one with the dark past and Matt Damon had the clean past, according to the cops. Of course, it was just all well hidden, but.
1: Yeah, well, those lines are very thin here. I mean, I think the whole movie is about the the thin line between good and evil and being on the right and wrong side of the gun in the law. You're right. It can sometimes totally fake you out because you believe you've come to accept certain things about certain characters, and then, lo and behold, the screenplay will surprise you, and you'll find another dimension to them that makes you challenge that perception. I think if you're confused, I think it's usually confused in a good way.
2: Damon, he— There was times where I'm like, man, this guy cannot look more guilty, but it also seemed realistic. I mean he pulls it off as this guy that doesn't quite know what he's doing. He's involved with this mob boss. He's trying to be a cop too. He's conflicted, and he comes off as as, as this kind of middle-class douchebag at times. But it fits Mm -hmm. the character, and he plays that role well.
1: You know, he aspires to douchebaggery. I mean, that's the whole goal of this. If we're going to get into some of the overt symbolism is that, you know, he wants to have this penthouse overlooking the Gold Dome of Boston. And I'm not even sure what that building is. But to him, it represents the good life, everything that he didn't have growing up. He wants to be a yuppie. You know, his whole apartment is this sparse, very yuppie place. He wants to date a psychologist. I mean, he's not a criminal in his own mind. That's not how he perceives himself. He really is trying to up his game and it's part of his double life.
3: The one problem I had with Matt Damon's character is the guy just didn't seem too smart because you've got several scenes not just one scene, several scenes where Jack Nicholson is telling Matt Damon information about what's going on in the cops. And I realized, you know, maybe an hour into this movie. So Jack Nicholson has other sources. Matt Damon never realizes this until like the very end reveal. I never realized it till the
1: end reveal.
2: Really? Yeah, neither neither did I. And that's one of my problems is I I never got the – and I've watched this four or five times now. Yeah. And I still – I'll have to go back and watch it again, Arnie, because I've never – picked up that nicholson had other sources i never saw that there are a
3: couple of scenes and i think one of them's in the adult movie theater which is just a great scene jack nicholson with a strap on everybody needs to see that but there's just he talks about the police doing something and matt damon is like yeah how'd you know that and jack nicholson just keeps moving the conversation along and it's i mean if if matt damon didn't tell jack nicholson someone told jack nicholson
1: but But they definitely portray Frank as a character that knows everybody and everything from that scene where he's walking in to uh the grocery store, he already knows matt Damon's father and, and has made all of these decisions about everyone there it wasn't making me think wow he's really connected to, w- to what's going on just in the police force through all matt damon only he knows everybody and everything he's on a first name basis with everyone hell there's a scene where he's in a restaurant and he looks over and there's a nun staring at him and the guy had screwed the nun <laughs> and then goes over and harasses the priest i mean it's he knew every every single person that walked boston you felt like Frank had a line on them. And that was just a fun character trait. So let's
3: talk about Jack Nicholson, because this man is the star of the movie, in my opinion. Despite the fact, I don't know who gets top billing, and everybody's talking about Matt and Leo, but to me, Jack Nicholson owns this film. Although, I think Jack Nicholson left his acting somewhere in the 80s, because every movie I see him in, he's playing about the same character. Sure, he's reading different lines, and sometimes he's funny, sometimes he's evil. But here, you know, he was kind of the Joker
1: yeah, you know, here's I guess this is where I'm going to take your Leo argument and and invert it. Here's the one recast I would make. I feel like Jack Nicholson is a terrific icon. I I love to see him go crazy. I love many of those seminal 70s, 80s films. But I just felt like there's nothing, A, particularly Irish about the man. Seeing him the head of an Irish mafia was a little hard to get over, but you accept it because it's Jack Nicholson. We just want to see him. I, but I felt like, yes, we had seen Jack give this performance a dozen times before, and that a different actor... And I'm not sure who. Maybe Liam Neeson could have given you uh, a little bit more authenticity, uh, something more fresh.
2: There seemed like a lot of disconnects to me. You get Matt Damon with this hard Boston accent, you know, like I said, came straight from Goodwill Hunting. And no one else really has that. I mean, everyone, I guess Marky Mark kind of has one, but Leo doesn't have any kind of Boston
3: accent. It comes and goes. Leo just cannot do accents.
2: Yeah. It. No one else really had that hard edge Boston accent. It kind of made, made Damon stick out here. So I guess I just went with it because it, it just seemed like, you know, if you've seen Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ, <laughs> you have Harvey Keitel as Judas and he's sitting there <laughs> talking like a New York gangster. Look, yeah. Christ, we got to go we got to go over here, get on the boat, go fishing a bit. You just go with it because I don't know. Why not? I I wasn't there in the Times of Christ. Maybe they talk like New York gangsters. (laughs) Who knows? But uh, this movie reminded me that when it came to accents, everyone just had their own accent, went along with their own thing. You know what? It's, It's Nicholson being Nicholson. It's Nicholson being the Joker without the makeup.
1: Totally, totally. Uh,
2: it, you know, it, it seemed once he hit a certain age, he, he kind of just doesn't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> he, he's old, he's bloated, his hair's all over the place. I mean, that's how he shows up to the Oscars now. Yeah, he's Jack fucking Nicholson. What are you going to do about it?
3: Even Scorsese didn't argue with Jack Nicholson. He just let Nicholson do whatever he wanted. Nicholson came up with the coke and hooker scene on his own, came up with the strap on on his own, and he even refused to wear a Boston's Red Sox hat because Nicholson is a big Yankees hat and decided that he was going to wear his Yankees hat. Who cares if this movie's in Boston or not?
1: Yeah, and you indulge it because it is Jack Nicholson. You hire Jack Nicholson, you let Jack Nicholson be Jack Nicholson. I get that. I guess I just feel like he's the thing to me that stood out in the cast. He's the thing to me that didn't feel like he was connected and, and playing with everybody else. He has all these great lines, and he's always dispensing wisdom and chewing the scenery and just sauntering through with the, the, with the smile. I guess I felt like he was just going back and doing his old bit, and everyone indulged him because they love that bit.
2: Stuart, who else is going to be able to pull off talking about John Lennon while eating breakfast and, and pulling <laughs> rings off of his severed hand? I, I don't know who else could pull that off where you're not just cracking up. I mean, he—you he, buy it from Nicholson. You that, do.
1: That, You've seen him do bought, it before. Yeah, would
2: eat his crumpets <laughs> while uh, dismembering parts from someone else. You know, I, yeah, I bought yeah.
1: it. Yeah, and he—he's got great lines here. I mean, my favorite thing that he says is that he loves being in restaurants, and he's like, "You can learn a lot by watching something eat." And then you know, later he—he he sneaks up on Leo, uh, eats something, and he's sneaking up on Leo because he's really trying to figure that guy out. He commands the screen. You're right. He is the star of the movie. It can be Damon and Leo and Mark Wahlberg and any other a list Hollywood guy on screen. It does not matter because this is Jack Nicholson's movie. Can we talk about Vera Formiga, the uh the love interest that sort of uh completes the uh circle between Damon and Leo?
3: You mean the worst shrink ever?
1: Yes, the worst yeah, shrink ever. She's
2: breaking all kind of rules.
1: I, you know, I would like to say I like Vera Famiga. I've seen her in a couple movies. She's up and coming. I think she's great in everything she does. But boy, she was handed a bad role uh, here. I feel like it's really hard to make this character understandable to the audience. Yeah, she is a therapist for cops who is dating Damon, thinking he is a cop. He is a cop. <laughs> Well, he is an e, yeah, okay. He's more <laughs> than a cop. And then Leo is her patient, or almost her patient, he sees her, and uh, she prescribes Oxycontin for him, and still decides that that's something that she wants to cat around with on the side. It's great symbolism, because it makes you see that Leo and Damon are two sides of the same coin, but as a character, as someone that we understand, it looks a bit foolish.
3: You know, I agree and I disagree. I do think that they did a lot of little things in this movie to show us that DiCaprio and Damon are mirror images of each other to the point of quoting these obscure things both being very well read both Mm -hmm. being well educated and you know both being sent by again as jacob said a father figure undercover you know one sent to the police academy the other sent to prison to do this and i i really liked a lot of that and in that way because they are so similar mirror images i could see this character falling for both of them you know because there's a lot of similar there. By the same token, she really is the worst shrink ever. If a patient yelling at you, I need pills, and what if I was really going to kill myself, gets the shrink to prescribe Oxycontin, and then she includes her business card because she is hitting on him. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's really, really bad at her
1: job. Yeah, it's boundaries. The girl needs some boundaries. There's a
3: scene where Matt Damon's like, You could do anything. You've got all these degrees. No, she sucks. She's horrible. She's lucky to be employed.
2: <laughs> I think her character is a victim of American storytelling. American television, movies, novels, they have to have the love story. You have to have the love triangle. That's just a convention in American storytelling. In Asian storytelling, The hero never gets the girl. There's never that love story. It fits, you know, that Chinese mentality where everything's very repressed. And so in Infernal Affairs, this character is actually two. You have the wife or girlfriend, if you will, of the Matt Damon character, and then you have this therapist. And I think it works better. You don't get this awful therapist running around screwing everyone, uh, handing out uh, prescription drugs. I just think, you know, they had to shoehorn this character into something that American audiences expect. And so that's why you get bad characterization. They they should have split this character into a couple different ones like it originally was.
1: Yeah, in the in the original trilogy, there were several characters, but, you know, it's economic storytelling. We Why have three characters when we can do it all in one and we only have such amount of time? I get it. If Vera were less charming, if it weren't nice to see the relationship moments between Damon and her in particular, I would say, oh, this is extraneous. You got to cut it. It's not extraneous. I, I understand that both men are psychologically damaged and that they would want to seek counsel and comfort from someone who is, in theory, a good therapist. So uh, I get that. But it's an indulgence I have to grant this movie. This movie has many contrived moments. I I love the movie, but it has many contrived moments that we have to just hit the button and suspend belief because that really wouldn't happen that way. I just wish that there'd been more payoff with her character. Her big moment is she
3: listens to the taped conversation between Matt Damon and Jack Nicholson because we find out at the end Jack Nicholson taped everything. Everything and it's just I wish that there'd been more for her. You know, she gets pregnant at the end, and of course, it, the unspoken question is whose baby is it? It doesn't ever. But she, then she's never seen again.
1: Yeah, I mean, the pregnancy is really what she's there for. It's another. Uh, you know, the movie is about uh, wayward boys that don't have good father figures and what happens to them in many respects. And here's another boy that's going to be born without a good father figure, probably going to be swept up into some kind of crime scene, although. Not with any of these people because they're all dead. <laughs> you know, another thing I love about this movie is about the paranoia of, of this decade. When we finally get away from this decade of security and 9-11 and all of this, I think we're going to see how paranoid our entertainment was. And this movie is a good reflection Without being overbearing, I feel like if you wanted to sum up the times we live in and how politically Al Qaeda, secret moles, and and terrorist sex, and who's a patriot and who's a criminal, this movie does an excellent job of that without ever invoking terrorist or, you know, Middle East or any of that. I mean, the anxiety, the existential anxiety that comes out of trying to play a good guy in a corrupt world is prevalent and, and every character has a secret identity and is, is really tailing somebody else. And I think it's just really satisfying to see something that's ripped from the headlines, but disguised so well.
2: Yeah. You know what? This, uh, this movie, I think in the future will come off is very time specific, very post nine 11. I mean, they got the lines in there. Thank God. I love the Patriot. Patriot
3: Act. love that line.
2: Love that line. But you know what really sells it, which kind of sets this in, in time? Arnie and I and Marjorie, we complained about this a lot in Saw, is that the cell phone's here. This was mm. a great realistic depiction of cell phones. Thank God these people didn't have smartphones because they had to memorize keypads and, and field <laughs> keys. But it was the little details like that. You know, you could tell this happened right after nine eleven. You know, people didn't have their, their Blackberries yet. They still had these these kind of primitive flip phones when those were fancy. But I, I, I love those little details in here that really gave this a definite time period, a a certain feeling to it.
1: Mm -hmm. Even more than that, they do bring in sort of a terrorist group, if you will. There's a whole subplot in this movie about microchips, and it's not really that important, important, but it does give something to do in the first half of the movie. There's these microchips that that Frank is going to sell to the Chinese, and uh, we've mentioned the scene before with all the cell phones. It's leading up to the fact that they're having a, a showdown in which Cash is exchanged for the microchips
3: i love jack nicholson in the face of automatic weaponry basically telling them all to fuck themselves you know it was it was a good scene and i liked all the tension surrounding it with alec baldwin beating the crap out of the poor technician who didn't have the time to set up all the cameras i felt very bad mm-hmm. for that technician
1: oh you feel bad for the technician oh, i know why <laughs> I'm the guy that does my job. Didn't Wahlberg have a good line there? Something, some kind of zing? He's got nothing but zings in this movie.
2: I, I love Wahlberg in here. I mean, th- this guy, if there's really cops like this guy, whenever he's on the screen, he, he's so out of control. He's like, that opening scene where him and Martin Sheen are, are where they're interviewing Leo, it's trying to see what his psychology is like. He's like, hey, you asshole prick, you're no cop. Uh, go suck your mother's cock. Then go suck your father's cock. In fact, why don't we all go suck their cocks? I mean, I yeah. love how over the top he is, I, it, it really sells the tension. You know, going back to the 9-11 theme, the, one of the big things that led up to 9-11 is that none of these agencies would have worked together. You, you had the, the FBI and the CIA, uh, the, and they're all doing their own thing. And you see that you get a condensed form of that going on here, which leads to tragedy. None of these yes. departments want to work together. The the stateies don't want to work with the local police, don't want to work with the FBI. The FBI, I mean, is almost one of the main villains in this story because they're allowing Frank, uh, Jack Nicholson, to go about and do his thing because they're getting information from him. So they keep getting him off of all these crimes.
1: Yeah, it's very satisfying in that way. That's When when I spoke about the, the 9-11 parallels and how it is about our times, it's exactly that. It's the fact that no one trusts anybody. There's not one person that really fully trusts somebody. And if they do, they usually get fucked with if it comes back on them, if they've actually extended that trust. And because of that reason, yeah, n- nothing gets done. It's just a vicious circle, really.
2: One of the holy shit moments in this movie where – I had no idea where it was going to go is when Leo and Martin Sheen, they're meeting together on top of this building. Frank's guys find out that they're there. They want to find out who the the mole is, the rat is in, in their organization. So they go there. Leo gets away. Martin Sheen is thrown off the top of this building and, and you got Leo just walking down the street. And all of a sudden this body falls right in front of him, splatters him with blood. And it was at that moment. I'm like, Oh shit, where's this movie going? Because now that, Leo, Leo's fucked. Now that, yeah, that was they, the one person on his side. Where the fuck's this movie going to go?
1: Yeah. The movie's progression is really about how Damon and Leo there, there's nobody left standing, but them. And so they slowly, but surely eliminate and push away all the supporting characters. It starts out. There's a lot of salty dogs, clamoring for attention and, you know, barking at each other. And then they, they pull that away. And you're right. When they pull Barton Sheen away from this, because he's one of the less salty ones. He's actually, when compared to Wahlberg, he and Wahlberg are always on screen together. Wahlberg is the one that's coming on heavy and, and just overbearing. And you would hate the guy if he weren't so funny and if he didn't have that hilarious cop hair. And uh, Sheen's the one that pulls back and is kind of paternal and, and, and he knows Leo's real identity. When he goes down, Leo is really screwed because there's only one person left that knows who he really is, that knows he's a good person and not a gangster. And would you really want Wahlberg to be that guy?
2: And Wahlberg doesn't even care enough about him to help him out. He just leaves. He puts in his yeah. two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. He, he's, well, he does get thrown off. I mean, I think, right? It's, it's well, more Well, yeah, they, want, they want him to turn out. Leo yeah. over. They want yeah. him to
2: turn Leo over, and he refuses. So he does
3: care about Leo to some degree to do that.
1: Yeah, or at least yeah. about the, the, the where they are in their investigation. He doesn't want to jeopardize that. I don't know that he ever cares about Leo. I don't know that he cares about anybody, but he definitely wanted to get Frank. That was really important to him, and so he was not going to give up his man.
3: And perhaps one of my complaints about this movie I, – I do like this movie, but I have some complaints. One of them is that a lot of these minor characters like Dingham are really important, but we never get a chance to know them. We don't know – Anything about him, you know? And Dingham, he's a cipher. He's on screen and he's, you know, a real pain in the ass. So what is he really caring about? We don't know. He just, he's doing actions, but we don't know why.
1: We know that he's committed to his job. And I think that's important. In a world where everyone's deceitful, we like the fact that this guy cares enough about his job that he's going to be a total douche to everyone around him. (laughs) And of course, we'll get there, but
2: he has... The Last Laugh. Well, before we get there, I, I, I want to bring up one of my problems with this film. Because like Arnie, there's a lot of things I like here. One of my problems was that this movie has a lot of theses or thesi – Not sure what the correct pronunciation is. (laughs) You know, I talked about that opening monologue, which I loved, and I really took that. Okay, here's the thesis of this movie. Here's the theme of this movie. No one gives a damn about you. You have to take it. You, you know, you have to create this world. We've all said there's a lot of great lines in this movie. You get this line: "Families are always falling and rising in America. Uh, This is America. You don't. If you don't make money, you're a douchebag." One of the great lines. There's a lot of themes about paternity and about being a man. You get Matt Damon. There's this line where it hints at that he's impotent. There's a scene where Matt Damon's with Alec Baldwin. They're golfing, and they're talking about how Matt Damon's engaged. And and Alec Baldwin's like, you know, it's good for a man to get married. It shows other men that he's stable. Uh, It shows women that he's, you know, when they see that ring, he's got some money. He can get it up. That's a good thing. There's a lot of comments about what it means to be a man, what it means, you know, to be an American. You know, America's a, a nation of fucking rats. A lot of great lines in here, but I just... Don't feel like any of these themes really pay off at the end. You're starting to build up, okay, this is about manhood or this is about being American or this is about you know, creating the world in your own image. And as we get into the ending of this film, I feel like nothing pays off here.
1: I hear what you're saying. I think you can make it more simply that it's about identity and that it's about how precarious that can be sometimes. That how you create yourself in the image and and you think of yourself one way and and why you're really doing something. I I, I actually feel like the themes are pretty strong in this movie. There's a lot of them and it can be a bit overwhelming. But having seen this again, I saw this when this initially came out in 2006 in theaters and haven't seen it since until we watched it for this podcast i had forgotten it how strong that sense of character is in this movie it is so much about these characters you're right trying to define themselves in a world that doesn't care about them i mean i think um, it makes you appreciate all of the nasty behavior it makes you the humor and the the passion makes you care for a lot of guys that are just basically jerks. I mean, outside of this movie, most of these people would be reprehensible. But in the context of this movie... I like them all. My thing about this movie, we're
3: we're pretty deep into the movie, and I started thinking of two other movies, which are probably pretty disparate. I was thinking about Heat, and I was thinking about The Wrath of Khan. The reason I was thinking about both of these is because the protagonist and the antagonist both steal the show, be it Kirk and Khan or be it uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, and they never meet. And in Heat, they realize this at a late scene and insert this horribly clumsy out-of-place scene of the two of them at a diner just chatting over some coffee and it was like here we've got all this going on we got jack nicholson and we've got martin sheen and we've got leo and matt damon and i really thought that maybe they'd never share screen time and then there's this clumsily inserted scene here where marky mark and martin sheen confront frank about the chips that seems awfully
1: forward for an undercover group (laughs)
3: yeah yeah
1: that was bizarre (laughs) that yeah frank would be by himself and the cops that are chasing him would would pop out from behind and be like, so, we're going to get you. But <laughs> we want to see that moment happen, so we... Like I said, there's contrivances that I indulge all the time in this.
3: But when, after Frank is killed, and it's Damon and DiCaprio alone, and then the two get to interact some more, you know, that's what you're wanting after all of this build-up, you know?
1: So I guess we're there to the end, then. I was really shocked when
3: Damon killed Nicholson, because... I don't think it was telegraphed enough. In reading the plot description of Infernal Affairs, it talks about how the Hong Kong counterpart decided he really wanted the life as a cop and he wanted to sever ties to the underworld and be the cop. And by killing the Frank character, he did that. I don't think that was really portrayed here. Here, he just kind of wants it all. You don't get that he wants to walk the straight and narrow now and he's tired of the duplicity. Here, he finds out Frank's an informant for the FBI. He's just afraid of Frank giving him up to the FBI. And so he shoots Frank. I I think that I like the Hong Kong interpretation more. I would have liked it more if it had been said that Damon wants to go straight and does these atrocious acts to do it.
2: I agree with you. When Damon kills Nicholson, I was really confused as to his motivation. Is he trying to go straight? Is he just trying to save his own name because he knows that Nicholson's been talking to the FBI in Infernal Affairs? It's pretty clear uh, that Damon's counterpart shoots Nicholson's counterpart because he wants to take over as boss. And being in the police force and being so high in the police force, he's going to be able to run a more efficient gang and get away with more. He seems to have plans behind being a cop this whole time and, and being involved you know with the mob at the same time that he, he wants to move up he, there's a line in in infernal affairs that where he's going to be the new caesar uh, implying that you know caesar was stabbed in the back and, and that a new king will rise and it's just not as clearly telegraphed in the departed i wasn't really sure what damon's motivation was i, I figured you know what he was in so deep after Queenen is killed You know the the cops are going to go apeshit crazy on on Frank Costello's gang. He's in too deep. There's no way he could play play this line between being a cop and being a, a mafia gang, a mobster. Anymore, And so he's going to make his move and actually try to go straight and cut all his ties. But I, I just didn't feel that was as clearly defined in The Departed.
1: I, I feel like the way that it plays – it's been too long since I've seen Infernal Affairs, and I actually saw Infernal Affairs before I saw The Departed. So I, I cannot – recall any similarities, but the way that it plays to me, coming to it fresher, was that Damon felt betrayed. It's ironic. Damon had been playing a double life all of this time about pretending to be a cop, but really being Frank's guy. And to find out that Frank was really potentially giving up information on him and all of their friends, I mean, I think the way that Damon defined himself in his mind was, I'm Frank's guy and I'll do anything for Frank, He sees that the revelation that Frank is an informant as a betrayal of him. And I I saw the scene as him shooting Nicholson because he was angry with him at being uh, betrayed. That's the way it played to me.
3: And I see that and I, I get that. And that was definitely put in this movie is Damon feels he's Nicholson's number one guy. Mm -hmm. Which is why it, it kind of probably stung Damon later on when Leo gets all of Nicholson's tapes and says out of everybody in the world, Nicholson trusted Leo the most when Leo was of course the rat. Right, And you get that when they're in the theater and Damon's telling Nicholson, let me do my job. I know what I'm doing. And he really thinks he's the
1: number one guy and... We do, too. I mean, Arnie, I think you're in a minority here, assuming that he wasn't. I think the audience does. I thought Nicholson never saw
3: Damon as valuable as Damon saw Damon. Mm. And the reason I say that is just because of these little things dropped along the way. I think Nicholson saw Damon as a valuable resource, but there's the one scene where Damon is demanding that Nicholson go get these social security numbers and all of this other stuff from his crew. And Nicholson kind of has a, wait, who the fuck's in charge here moment. And between that and the fact that Nicholson was at times one step ahead of Damon, you know, it, it was subtle, but I got that Damon overstated his own importance to Frank.
2: I'll agree with you, Arnie. There's definitely this feel that Damon has where he thinks he's the top dog. He's, he's the number two guy to Frank. He gets that feeling, but I, there's enough moments in the film where you know Frank doesn't feel that way. The movie theater, like you said, the social security number scene is a big one where he's mm-hmm. like, you, you're trying to fucking tell me what to do? I think there's enough hints that where Damon finally realized that, hey, uh, maybe this isn't the best relationship for me. And I got to sever ties. And I, I, th- I honestly think that Damon was going to try to go straight after he killed Frank.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think he was charmed by the straight life that he idealized being above everyone. I mean, yeah, he wanted to be number one. He definitely thought he was number one in the academy. He thought he was the number one man of Frank. He wanted to have the apartment uh, that none of his friends could imagine. The girl that he wasn't supposed to get. All of that stuff. I think I I like the revelation of that. I like the way that that comes undone for him. That's his tragedy is that he realizes that he wasn't and that if he hadn't found it out at that moment holding a gun, he probably wouldn't have killed Frank. But it was the sting of being betrayed. And then we go into the end of the movie and, you
3: know, I'm going to kind of pull Jacob's comment from Gangs of New York. I kind of felt a little bit blue balled by the ending. You know, we've got the two facing off back on that roof, DiCaprio and Damon. And then out of nowhere, Anthony Anderson shows up and DiCaprio called him because the two of them had one scene together at the beginning of the movie in train. And he's like, you know me, you know me. And then they get in the elevator. And of course, I'm sitting here like, you know, when the elevator door opens, Leo, you're going to want Damon in front of you again. (laughs) That was all I was thinking. I've never seen this movie before. And I'm just like, get behind Damon. Get back behind. Oh, shit. There he goes. He was shot in the head.
1: (laughs) You anticipated him getting shot? Yeah, I did. I really did. Oh, my God. Well, all I can say is then you were five steps ahead of me this whole movie because I never saw that coming uh, the first time that I saw it.
3: I will say this. I didn't expect him to die. I expected him to be shot. There's a difference. I didn't expect him to be shot in the head. And that is the end of Leo's character arc.
0: Mm -hmm. I expected
3: him to be shot in the arm. I really thought this movie was going to end up like every other action movie with Leo the hero and Damon dead. And because that's how movies end is the good guy cop who's remained loyal lives and the bad guy dies. And that is not how this movie ended. When Leo was killed, I was like, well, I didn't see that coming. I saw him getting shot. I saw him getting wounded. I saw him making a bad move by letting his guard down in the elevator. I did not see a who would do it. I still don't know who shot. Him. some background guy who never had two lines.
1: No, Chuber Berrigan, Anthony Anderson's, you remember him more because he's the token black character in this. I, and Kangaroo Jack is all I ever see when I see the yes. guy. <laughs> um. <laughs> all right, I, I'm
3: sorry, the man has a huge resume. To me, he's straight out of Malibu's Most Wanted. <laughs>
1: Uh, okay, there's a
3: movie. I can all not
2: good movies. Yeah. yeah,
1: pretty much. He's lucky to be in a Scorsese movie, is the way I see it. Um Trooper Barrigan is the other guy. He's the anonymous white guy who, in the beginning of the movie, Damon kind of is like, you want to be a trooper all your life? Come work for me. He's not as smart as Damon, or at least Damon doesn't think he's as smart as him. He thinks he's doing a favor by bringing him on the team, so that the revelation that he was also one of Frank's guys and that Damon wasn't the only guy comes out of that scene it's a shocker it's a total shocker
2: i'm gonna agree with you it's a shocker and i didn't like it i it's weak writing when you have to pull out a surprise everyone loved being surprised in the sixth sense it's weak storytelling though strong storytelling doesn't rely on tricks and surprises And everything in this movie was telegraphed. We knew everyone was a rat who they were affiliated with. And then you get this one lone cop. I didn't realize who this guy was until the third time I watched this movie. I'm like, oh, this is that guy at the beginning where Matt Damon tells him to wear a suit. Stop dressing like a cop. I I never even got that until I'd watched this movie a few times. Nothing's ever telegraphed about this character. And it just seems like deus ex machina. We got to pull something out to, to get to the ending that we want. And I didn't like that. I, I think that.
1: another thing uh, is that this is one of the few parts being played by an unknown. Like, who is this guy? I don't know who this actor is. If they had cast it with somebody else, if that had been Brad Pitt then we would have known to expect this out of him. It's because it's the anonymous white guy that's been hanging out with Kangaroo Jack that we're so thrown. Yeah, when the elevator doors open, I could have suspected that there would have been a hundred cops there with guns pointing at them. I would not have thought that it would have been this guy. I like the payout of this moment.
3: It reminded me of the end of Gangs of New York when the butcher is killed
1: by random shrapnel. Although it's not random shrapnel this time. I think that's the fix. I agree with you, it's like that, but it's not random shrapnel. I consider that bland white guy to be random shrapnel, and he (laughs) killed Leo. Uh, Well, watch the movie again. I wonder if you would have the same feeling. I definitely didn't see it coming, and I think it thematically and narratively works. More to the point, I'm going to step out of the movie a little bit. I think it out Tarantino's Tarantino. I thought he had done the Mexican standoff that Tarantino stages time and time again better than Tarantino ever has. I thought it was great. Leo goes down. I mean, it's like pow, pow, pow. Leo goes down, and then Anthony Anderson runs on the scene. What happened? And the corrupt cop shoots him as well and said, hey, I'm an informant for Frank, too, and thinks that he and Damon are going to go riding off away from all of this to the good life, and then Damon shoots him. I think it's the same impulse that had Damon shooting Jack Nicholson. It's – I wanted to be the special one, and you ruined that for me.
2: He's throwing I do a un- <laughs> temper tantrum.
1: Yeah, he's throwing a temper tantrum. His vanity has gotten the best of him. It is his tragic downfall. So after Damon takes out everybody... You think, who's left? He's gotten away. The bad guy has gotten away. And we have a final moment with him returning scorned, punished because he doesn't get Vera Famiga. And his neighbors kind of look at him with disdain, so I don't know what they know, but they know something. And he's coming home into his apartment overlooking the Gold Dome. And lo and behold, the character that we've forgotten about in all of the last 40 minutes of, of drama, Marky Mark is standing there with gloves and booties and a pistol, And uh, a surgical cap. Yes, yes. And takes Damon out. Again, didn't see it coming, and it's very, very satisfying.
2: No, it's not satisfying at all. I I don't think. In Infernal Affairs, the Matt Damon character lives and he's trapped in this hell. You know, again, maybe the stereotype of Asian culture, there's this high value of honor and you you got to be honorable. There's nothing greater than your honor. And here's a man who has killed everyone, killed the cops, killed the mafia, he's killed everyone that he was tied to. And there's nothing redeemable about him, and he's sitting there, and he's trapped in this hell while he's alive, and he wishes he was dead. And here in The Departed, we get the American version where everyone's got to die. All The, you know, the bad guy's got to die. We, we get that satisfying ending. Uh, I just didn't like it. It didn't go with any of these themes. It was like it was too Hamlet for me. Everyone dies. What was the point of all these theses about identity and, and and all that when we don't get to see how any of it plays out?
1: Well, I, I mean, would, I think death is a fair punishment. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's one that
2: as an audience. Yeah, that's American retribution. That's, sure. a, that's an American, it's an American, thing. It's thing. An American but,
1: remake. And I can appreciate both the Hong Kong take and the American remake on it. I hear what you're saying. You feel like it makes it more of a cliché. But to me, it's not a cliche because it's Matt Damon and because secretly we've been rooting for him the whole time. We, I didn't know I was watching a tragedy. I knew that things were going to go bad for people, but I didn't realize it was going to go bad for absolutely everyone. Exactly.
3: I didn't realize that either. I thought I was watching a straight-up crime pic a la Heat, and the moment everybody starts to die, all of a sudden my feeling about this movie changed because, you know, in the beginning of the movie, I'd say the first hour, I was so into this movie because of the performances, because of the quotable lines, because of the action. The second hour of this movie, I was kind of like, eh, things are kind of dragging. I realize they're sort of ratcheting it up, but I wasn't quite, you know, there. And then when everybody starts dying, I I just don't go for the tragic endings. They just, to me, they always seem like a little bit of a, a cop-out. You know, I in Shakespeare, when he does it with Hamlet, and Romeo and Juliet, I get that it's dramatically paying off the entire story, and the whole story builds to that, but there's, you want to know what this ending reminded me of, and this is out of left field, and maybe neither of you have seen this, but there's this little Joss Whedon webisode called Dr. Horrible, and at the end of that, it's got a a kind of a somewhat similar ending in certain regards, and it just is like, this isn't what you were selling me the whole time, this is like, you're fucking with me, and I don't like that.
1: Honestly, if I had predicted what the ending would be, it was that Leo was going to somehow get out of this, but he was going to be the character that had regrets and compromise, that he had to be a bad guy in order to get Damon or something. I was not prepared for the Shakespearean ending. And we keep calling it a Shakespearean ending. I think it is – I think that they even know that. There's several characters who are quoting Shakespeare and classic literature out of character. It's like, why do these Boston tough guys know about Shakespeare? But they do, time and again, they're quoting it throughout the movie. I think that's what they're leading towards. And I didn't realize they were leading to it, but once once it was revealed to me, it seemed to really click. I don't know. I really, It's one of those things where I didn't anticipate that being the ending, but I was glad that it was when it was over.
3: And it's the ending that makes me want to rewatch this movie as much as I do. Out of all the movies we've seen so far of this retrospective series, this is the only one where in the middle I'm like, "I I want to see this again. But then after the ending, I'm like, I really want to see this again to see if this is as out of left field as it felt upon my first viewing or if it does build to this. And this is the payoff that w- fits the story we're told, because I expected a very American ending. Leo shoots Matt the end. That's what I saw coming. And this I would
1: have preferred the girlfriend shoot Matt. Mm that would have been surprising too. I'm not sure I would have liked that. They even do nice foreshadowing like Damon's intro in the movie is in a grocery store and he's got groceries. His last shot, he's shot holding the same groceries. They fall on the floor. There's there's all sorts of nice detail work here. I don't think it's as random as, well, as you you're portraying. Yeah. I agree. There is a lot of detail work there. Is it nice?
3: Does it add anything into the movie? Because I didn't notice it when I watched. When I go on IMDb and read, hey, he's has the same milk in the grocery bag at the end of the movie as the beginning. I, I refer back to my artistic douchebaggery. It doesn't add anything. There's no symbolism of the milk. It ends as it begins. It's bullshit. It's artistic bullshit.
1: Let's, let's talk about symbolism because I think when people find out there's a symbolism, they feel like they're being conned. Like someone's trying to do something to me and I don't get it it and they're trying to make me feel stupid it's just uh, good storytelling is about introducing what does the milk symbolize the that? that nothing ab- n- nothing it symbolizes nothing other than uh symmetry it's it's uh, you're, but
2: you're, what, it's, what does the movie have to do with symmetry then the whole
1: movie is symmetrical every one thing has a shadow self there's for every dicaprio there's a daemon for every one one object introduced. There's another one. I, I, I don't think that is douchery. I think that that is complimentary. I think that these things
2: um, come together. In, in this movie, I wish it was just more of a straight uh, cop thriller, crime fiction story. I, I wish he would have left out some of that heavy hand in this here because it just it never paid off for me. I would agree with,
3: comes back to those Irish shots. We have symmetry in our own podcast because I think we started talking about the Irish shots. I just felt like it was too much. It was too obvious and too out of place. It was like, you know, it's like Scorsese is two people at war with himself. There's the one that likes a good American crime film. And then there's the one who would like to be off taking black and white photographs with Ansel Adams. And the two don't merge well together.
2: Yet. Stuart, you said you liked ambiguity. I love ambiguity in story. I, I, I love it. I love it when things aren't black and white. The problem with the ending of this movie is that it is so black and white that yeah. everyone dies. All the all these people that were bad die. All these people that even you know sided with the bad guys, even though they were undercover, die. You you know you, it just. There's no ambiguity at the end, it, it, and that's, that's the problem uh, with it for me is that it just – it seems to subvert everything else that this movie was about.
1: And it is out of character of Scorsese. If you look at most of his characters, their last shots are with them struggling with anguish. It is not with everyone dying. That's not, that's not how the ending usually goes. From Aviator, Raging Bull, all of them, it's usually people taking a hard look at the mirror and not liking what they see either literally or figuratively. And in this one, yeah, I felt like it was him listening to other voices and pushing himself to give a more traditional Hollywood ending. And I, I hear what you guys are saying. You, you didn't care for it. I, it surprised me, and maybe that's it, maybe more than anything. It surprised me that Scorsese went that route, and it was a nice surprise
2: i guess we can't be too surprised everyone dies at the end it is called the departed i I guess i should have taken that uh, more literally (laughs) i I guess I, i i took it more figuratively where people were departing from their integrity and their values but as unsatisfying as that ending felt i think it does fit scorsese in some of his themes you know thinking about gangs in new york it starts off with the early history of new york and it's these gangs that run the town by the end of the movie it's it's the government that wins out they start shooting the cannons during the riots and the gangs are destroyed, and New york you know rises up to be this great city. Order is somewhat restored. Good fellows same thing you you got the, this guy ever since he was a little kid, he wanted to be a gangster, and in the end. The government wins out. He goes into witness protection and turns on the mafia. Scorsese seems to have this theme where you get these underground cultures. Again, here you have this mafia, and in the end, the police went out. All the mafia guys, Frank's dead. He seems to have this story where you kind of have you have these origins in corruption and in gangs. But in the end, it's the government and politics that went out. And I, maybe he's alluding to the fact that government and politicians are just the strongest gang out there that no one can beat him, but I I, I think it does kind of fit these themes that Scorsese has in his other films, you know, about outsiders and and underground cultures, and eventually, you know, they're Forced to fit into society.
1: If anything, it's a happier ending than most. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, almost every Scorsese movie ends in tragedy. The uplift of this one is we get to see one good guy. We're at least reassured that there is somebody noble here. In a picture filled with rats with tails, here's a guy, Mark Wahlberg who gets to take down the bad guy, the conflicted bad guy. So in that respect, I think there's a cheering moment. I mean, I definitely have seen this movie and seen people cheer and they love Wahlberg in this movie, I think because he gets to be the sheriff that rides in and puts justice right. In a world full of so much corruption and shifting morality, here is a character who is the good guy.
2: I love the fact that he's in a tracksuit with shower caps on his feet, so there's no <laughs> footprints or DNA left. Oh, behind. that's
1: yeah. The second you see him, they don't even need to show Damon going down. The second you see him, you know how it's going to go, and it's just it's it's. A, I think it's a stand up and cheer
2: moment. I love it. There's one final scene I need to bring up because this really hurt the movie for me. You got Matt Damon; he's lying on the ground. Marky Mark walks away, and you get this panning shot. It goes out onto the balcony, and across the banister, a rat runs across. And I I talked about some heavy-handed symbolism at at the beginning of this film. You you know, before I saw The Departed, I saw a Simpsons episode. It was a few seasons ago, and they did a Departed parody. And you get this scene at the end of that Simpsons episode where there's a rat, and you have Ralph Wiggum, who is the idiot of idiots. And he looks at the rat, and he says... The rat stands for obviousness. (laughs) And and I I didn't get that. I'm like, there's – that really can't happen in The Departed. There can't really be like some clunk on the head symbol in this movie like that. And you get to the end of this where it focuses on a rat. It was so insulting. I talked about, you know, the end of Gangs in New York was kind of confusing with this, this narrative and seeing New York rise. Or not really sure what that was about. You talked about the end of The Aviator being unsatisfying. It just kind of ends. The end of The Departed is just insulting to me. I, I found I was so insulted by that last shot. It almost destroyed all the good feelings I had for this movie. Wow. Uh,
1: It's obvious. You're right. It, It hits you on the head. It brings the theme back that everyone's a rat. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it because of this one thing. This is supposed to be the nicest apartment in Boston, and even a rat can get there up there on a ledge. And I think that that pretty much sums up everything that we saw. It's, it's, it's obvious. It's one of those things that the second you say it, you realize that you're being redundant. But it worked for me just as long as we don't have to talk about it or think about it too hard. It seems like a logical concluding image the rat running on in the nice apartment with the golden dome out of reach. So I mentioned in the last podcast that Scorsese and Leo had, they, they've done each other's pet projects. They were still left empty handed. This is the film that finally broke the Scorsese curse Oscars for best picture, best director, screenplay, and editing. The man is now finally considered one of Hollywood and not an outsider. Um, is this the one you want to remember Scorsese for? Is this the one that he should have won for?
2: No <laughs> he, he, he won because he's Scorsese and they've been looking to give him an Oscar for a while. I guess there was no Lord of the Rings movies that came out that year and, and it wasn't yeah. the Aviator, so yeah. you know they obviously couldn't give the Aviator that award, but this one it's a decent flick, so yeah, that they're going to give him the, the Academy award.
3: You know, it's funny because I I've really tuned out of the Academy Awards recently. I don't really care about them. I am surprised, though, that in even to the point of putting this disc in, I didn't realize it had won four Academy Awards, including I think Marky Mark gets one for Supporting Actor. He was nominated.
1: Out of all of this tough guy cast, from Jack Nicholson on down, the only one to be nominated is an underwear model.
2: And you know that you know it's a gimme award when it gets best picture and none of the actors are nominated. That's just a sign of a, it's really a lifetime achievement award.
3: I think that had Scorsese not had everyone die at the end, he wouldn't have won. The Academy loves this kind of bullshit and they love the rat on the ledge. This is what they reward and this is why I don't watch the Academy Awards.
1: And I think you're right. I do think that some of the higher aspirations here help it be perceived as art and not as just entertainment and pulp and so okay you're bumping up against it i totally dug it final thoughts then all right so we've heard some mixed responses good and bad arnie jacob do you recommend the departed
3: I do recommend The Depart quite easily. The performances here are head and shoulders above anything I've seen in a long freaking time. Leo is the weakest link goodbye. Hey, I made a joke from 1995. (laughs) But other than that, I think everybody is just a fire on this screen. It's been so long since I can remember seeing Martin Sheen in something, but to see him and to be good in it, and Marky Mark, I'm kind of a little bit hesitant on. I know everybody came around to him with Boogie Nights. I did not. Planet of the Apes didn't help but he's good in it I'm I'm a fan of Alec Baldwin in anything just Jack Nicholson being Jack Nicholson a great cast all the way around and just a great crime story with some good suspense You know, I probably would have given this an extraordinarily strong recommendation, but the ending left me felt really let down by the movie. I loved the suspense and the chess game that occurred between Damon and DiCaprio, this whole film. And I was so interested in it, and the way it ended just didn't satisfy me. And then, you know, Matt Damon's going through, I want to recommend it for the Medal of Honor. And all of that, and I'm just like, okay, this movie's still going, everybody's dead, let's just, let's roll credits, please. Oh, wait, there's Marky always oh, dead too, okay, now can we roll credits? Scorsese can't kill his darlings anymore, he can't make a tight movie because he's just too self-indulgent. So I give it uh, the strongest recommendation of this series, I like this a lot more than Gangs of New York even, but it's still kind of a, you know, mixed recommendation because I feel the ending was a letdown, and I feel... Feel overall, Scorsese just tried to be a little bit heavy-handed.
2: Okay, Jacob, I had to think a lot about this one. I kept going back and forth. I, like I said, that last shot was so insulting to my intelligence of that rat on on the balcony. It really hurt this movie for me. I liked this movie when it was a cat and mouse game, even though all the cat and mice were rats. I liked it when it was a cat (laughs) and mice game. By the end, it's like the exterminator has just walked in with toxic chemical to the infinite power and just destroys everything. It's like just watching a, a giant boot stomp on cockroaches by the end. <laughs> it, it loses all the subtlety. It loses it loses the intrigue for me by the ending. It's like a sign saying, Hey, you stupid idiot. You know, look at this. This is what the movie's about. Like we also said This starts very strong. I I love this screenplay. Go out. You can probably find the screenplay on the internet. Great lines of this movie. It's a great read. Ultimately, I'm going to recommend this movie. Not because I think it's the best picture of the year when it won that award. No, not because I I think it's one of Scorsese's best. It's a fun film, you know, as far as crime fiction goes. I read a lot of crime fiction. It's a genre I enjoy. I don't think this is a, a shining moment in the genre, but it's a decent film, you know, if, if this was out in theaters right now, would you have to plop down you know, ten bucks to go see it right away in the theaters? No it's a rental, you know, put it on your Netflix queue, you don't have to throw it on the top there, if it's on TV, yeah, give it a watch I recommend it, it's not a, a, a glowing recommendation, but it, it's not a bad film it has its flaws, uh, we've discussed them, but I, I think you'll enjoy it, if you go into this just wanting a, a good crime fiction story, I think you'll enjoy this
1: Okay, and I'm going to second what both of you say much more strongly. I really like the film. If you want a glowing review, I'll give you that. I think the movie's great. I think it's both great fun, and I think its themes are rich, and I think you can appreciate it as art house douchery, or as a simple uh, Boston crime film. I think it can be all things to all people, and it's it's a nice peak. Is it my very favorite Scorsese movie? No, but it's easily my favorite Scorsese movie since Goodfellas. It had been on almost 20 years since he had been as good as he is here and I think the movie is tight. I think he does a great job of compressing All of the elements to give you a very satisfying, rich experience. I don't know what they're going to do for an encore. You know, we're now heading into our fourth part of the series and the one movie I haven't seen yet. I'm a little hesitant. I'll I'll be honest with you guys. I'm not sure how to feel about this. After he made Goodfellas, he made Cape Fear, which I thought was a really overwrought thriller. Let's let's hope that doesn't happen again. I really disliked Cape Fear. Yeah, yeah.
3: I just hope that DiCaprio doesn't have to try to fake another accent poorly. That's three for
1: three. Well, it's Boston. It's Boston. He's back in Boston. He's he's. They've been duly appointed marshals, if you've seen the uh, trailer. It's uh, a, another Boston God movie. God damn it. Well... <laughs> We will, we will depart until next time. Thanks, guys. It's been a lot of
3: fun. I would like to remind our listeners to let us know what they think of this series. It's a little bit of a difference for Now Playing. You can let us know on Facebook where we're Now Playing Podcast. Facebook.com forward slash Now Playing Podcast will get you there. You can let us know on Twitter where we're Now Playing Pod because everything on Twitter has to be shorter. Or just come to NowPlayingPodcast.com and let us know in our forums. And I'd also like to let our listeners know that I have another podcast that i do called books and nachos and on a recent episode i interviewed alex ben brock author of george lucas's blockbusting and he kind of defended avatar i know a lot of our listeners kind of rankled with our review of avatar so if you want to hear more about
1: avatar you can check that out at booksandnachos.com. okay then well until next time we'll see you on shutter islands
0: God, I die a true American. Thank you for joining us for Now Playing: *Spartan Scorsese*, *Leonardo DiCaprio* retrospective series. Be sure to visit us at NowPlayingPodcast.com every Friday from now until the release of *Shutter Island*, February nineteenth, for a new installment in this series. The movies discussed in this series are the properties of their respective trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing is not affiliated with Miramax Films, Intermedia Films, Initial Entertainment Group, Warner Brothers, or any other creative entity involved in these films. Now Playing is a production of Nganza Media Incorporated, copyright and trademark 2010, all rights reserved.
1: Way of the future. Way of the future. Way of the future. The way of the future. All right, folks. Should we? How do we start this? Plot Plot summary. summary? Oh my God. All right. (laughs) How do I? I...
3: Actually, been meaning to email you for two days and saying, hey, you might want to write that up in advance, and I just never did. So.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well. Well. (laughs) It's more fun to watch you edit for hours, right? (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, i spin gold you you weave it into a into a cloak that's the way i see it you know i'll just say a strand here and there and you can patch it together and, and, and I, I
3: picture you as Stillskin <laughs> and i'm the one on the wheel having to spin the
1: hay into gold <laughs> you know? oh yeah yeah okay um fanboy, I'm willing to admit this one may not be one of the best I'm going to just trust these guys because I've liked all three movies in this podcast that they know what they're doing but I can tell you right now if the ending of this next movie is that he's all crazy and everything was in his mind which is what they seem to imply from that trailer the podcast will be nothing but me shrieking at the top of, don't even download it it'll just be me shrieking at the top of my lungs NO!